Our text this morning is Acts chapter 13, and the sermon that Paul preaches in this text is a long portion, so I'm just going to read the conclusion, and then we'll work our way through the sermon this morning. I want you to begin with me in verse 41, where Paul closes the sermon that he is preaching in Antioch of Pisidia. Behold, ye despisers, and wonder, and perish. For I, this is God speaking, work a work in your days, a work which ye shall in no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you. God says, I'm going to work a work. We know that God is always at work. I am glad for that truth. That is, that is what allows me to lay my head on my pillow at night. You can turn on the news. You'd be wiser probably to turn off the news. Uh, you can read stories. You can hear um, well-meaning people who want to talk about how bad things are. And let me just acknowledge there is plenty in our world uh, to cause concern. There are plenty of things about the direction that our world is headed in to cause concern. And it is easy to forget this essential truth that God is in charge. You believe that? It's one thing to believe it. It's another thing to live like it's true. In this passage, Paul is going to preach a sermon. You know that Paul has only been converted a short time, but he has spent some years already training in the, in the region of Arabia. He has been taken by Barnabas to the church, and now he is in Antioch of Caesarea, and he is, he is uh, being trained. He is one of the leaders in the church. We saw in verse 1 last week that he is listed as one of the teachers, one of the elders, the leaders of the church. He's at the bottom of the list, but he's on the list. Barnabas is at the top of the list. He's the, he's the one with the most experience. He's the one that is the, the leader of the leaders. And the Holy Spirit says in this, those verses, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. The church confirms the call of God. And let me remind you that when it comes to ministry, when it comes to service, it is the Holy Spirit that makes the decisions. The church simply affirms what the Holy Spirit has already said to do. And so he says, separate them unto the work whereunto I have called them. The Holy Spirit had placed a call on Barnabas and on Saul, and he sends them out. The church prays, and they send them out. They experience uh, an extraordinary experience where there's one really evil man and one really fervent believer. And something dramatically changes in the dynamic of the team. We come to verse 13. It says, now, up to this point, it's been Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas and Saul. But now we read, not only has Paul changed his name, but when Paul and his company... This says something to us significantly, I believe, about the humility of Barnabas. To be able to move from the front and the leader to be the second voice. Dr. Warren Wearsby used to say, it taketh more grace than I can tell to play the second fiddle well. Many people are not willing to step back, and Barnabas is willing to do that. Now, it doesn't sit very well with his nephew, John Mark, who was along on the journey with them, and it seems to be at this point, perhaps, maybe that's one of the reasons that, that John Mark leaves him. You'll remember that uh, this later will cause a dissension in, in the next missionary journey between Paul and Barnabas, and uh, 
because Paul will say he left us and we're not going to take him this time. He doesn't want to give him a second chance. Later, Paul will write and say, send John Mark. He is profitable to me in the ministry. We're thankful that God is not finished with people that he is at work in their life. Their failures, our failures, do not mark us. Just because we have failed does not mean we are a failure. And so Paul and his company come to Antioch of Pisidia. It's a different Antioch that they left from. And they go into the synagogue on Saturday, on the Sabbath day. This would become Paul's, his, his M.O. This would become his means of practicing, of preaching to the Jew first and then also to the Greek. He would go into the synagogues. And as a rabbi, it was their tradition that after they read the text from the Old Testament, they would have reading of Scripture. It was their tradition that if there were visiting rabbis, they would give them the opportunity to stand and, and speak and share a truth, share some message. And, of course, Paul is marked. He has the attire, and they can tell that he is a, a rabbi from Jerusalem. And, and so they ask him, and you see this in verse 15, after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent unto them, saying, Ye men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. You should never say that to a preacher. If you don't want to hear something, don't say, Hey, got something to say? Because nine times out of ten, we've got something to say. And Paul, of course, does. And notice what happens when Paul stood up and beckoning with his hand, he said... Men of Israel and ye that fear God, give audience. Pay attention to what I'm getting ready to say. He speaks to two different groups of people that are in this synagogue. In any synagogue around the Mediterranean world, there would have been two groups of people. There were the men of Israel. There were those who were Jewish by birth. But there were those who feared God. They were the God-fearers. They were the, the proselytes. They were Gentiles who had come to trust in Israel's God and had come to worship in Israel's way. And so he's preaching to an audience, he's preaching to a crowd that is Jewish by birth and Jewish by choice. And as Paul begins to preach, there is one thing that both of those groups would have been very familiar with, and that was the truth of Scripture. They heard the Scriptures read every single Sabbath. They sat and they listened and they had studied, many of them had studied the Scriptures, so they are familiar with the Scriptures. And so his starting point of his message that he's getting ready to preach to them, this word of exhortation that he's about to give, is rooted in the Scriptures of the Old Testament. And the point of his message is what he will culminate in with that word from God, I am going to work a work. God is at work. Now, what the question for us is, what, what on earth is God doing? What is God at work doing? We'll see that truth in this passage. I want you to see as we look through this sermon, there's, like every good Baptist preacher, he has three points. Now, he doesn't conclude with a poem or a great illustration, so it's a little, you know, we'll, we'll grade Paul at probably... Uh, maybe a 7.5 on this. He didn't quite stick the land. No, sorry. It's, a, it's an inspired sermon, so we're not going to... We'll give him a... That's, this is a 10 out of a 10. This is a... As some of y'all are prone to remind me, this is a Gatorade-worthy sermon. Some, some of y'all... I'm going to have to explain that. Somebody said that, you know, like a coach that wins a ball game, they dump Gatorade on them. Maybe after a good sermon and service, the choir can dump Gatorade on the pastor. Please don't do that. Um, but metaphorically speaking, this was a Gatorade-worthy sermon. This was, a, this was a 10. This is the Holy Spirit speaking through Paul. I want you to see, first of all, the reality of God's work. Paul makes it clear that God is at work. Jesus said 
in John chapter 5, verse 17, my father works hitherto, and I also work. We know that God began from the very beginning. In the beginning, God created. It is God plus an action verb. It is God and action. He is creating. Exodus chapter 20 will say that they are to work six days and rest seven because God created for six days and rested on the seventh. And those days of labor, that's what God was doing. We find God at work. God is at work in creation. God is at work in redemption. God is working to restore all of creation to its original intent. We live in a fallen, divided, sinful, sin-cursed world. But God, in His grace, is at work to restore us and creation to its originally intended condition. And as we look at this, Paul is going to give several pieces of evidence. He's going to start with a summary of Israel's history what God had done in the Old Testament. And he knows, they know these verses, they know these stories, they have heard these stories over and over again. And we have to be careful when we look at the stories in the Old Testament. Because if we're not careful, we'll see them just as isolated events. We'll see them as isolated stories that we moralize and we turn into good lessons from them. But we have to understand that each one is a part of God's continuing work in his people. And that's what Paul is going to do. I want you to follow with me. And as I read these verses, I want you to see how many times we see God as the one who is doing the action. God is the one who is at work. God is the one that is in control. Look in verse 17. The God of this people of Israel chose our fathers. That's the first thing to watch for. It's not there together, but it's God chose who is the one that called and spoke to Abraham? It was not Abraham seeking God. Abraham was a pagan. Abraham was a moon-worshipping pagan. And yet God knew in his heart, and there was faith in Abraham's heart, and he was counted unto him for righteousness. And he called him to go out, and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, God chose our fathers. Look at this. And he exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with a high arm, he brought them out. God chose. God exalted. He brought them out. And each one demonstrates his power. The power of God demonstrated against the gods of Egypt. Verse 18, In about the time of 40 years suffered he their manners in the wilderness. God put up with their misbehavior for 40 years. What was this? This was their unbelief. We see a cycle here. We see a pattern that it's God at work, God acting, God doing, and God's people not believing. We see action, but we see unbelief. And for 40 years he suffered their manners in the wilderness. Verse 19, when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, God destroyed, God divided their land to them by lots. And after that, he, God, gave them judges about the space of 450 years until Samuel the prophet. What is God doing? Why do they need judges? Because they continually rebel against God. They don't believe, they don't trust, and they're taken into captivity, and God sends a deliverer, and the deliverer comes, and he brings them out. And what happens? They follow for a while, as long as they've got that leader, but once the leader passes off the scene, they go right back into the cycle of unbelief and disobedience until Samuel comes along. God gives them Samuel the prophet, and what do they do? They come to Samuel, and they say, Samuel, 
we want a king. And Samuel says, you should be satisfied with God as your king. Let me tell you that as people, <laughs> nations, families, and individuals, we better be careful what we ask for. What we think we want and what we think we need may not be what we need. And so they said, we want a king. And you remember what God said to Samuel? God said, Samuel, they've not rejected you. They've rejected me. What do we see this cycle again of God acting, God working in his people, and them disbelieving? And so God gave them Saul for the space of 40 years, verse 22. And when he, God, had removed him. Who put Saul in place? God did. Who moved Saul out? God did. Who's in control of who's in authority? God is. Let's never forget that. Let's never forget that even in world events, God is still in control. Daniel said he's the one that sets kings up and he's the one that takes kings down. And that's exactly what Paul says here. When he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. One action after another of God, the history, the summary of what has happened in the past is a strong reminder that God is at work. I want you to know that we can look at what has happened in the world, we can look at what has happened in our lives, and we can see a history of God at work. If you've trusted Christ as your Savior this morning, God was at work in your life long before you trusted Christ. Romans chapter 2 says, Do you not know that it is the goodness of God that leads you to repentance? What was it that drew us? What was it that brought us to a place where we repented and placed our faith and trust in God. It was the goodness and grace of God that was drawing us and wooing us and calling us and convicting us. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, but you feel that moving in your heart, that is not man-made manipulation. That is the work of the Holy Spirit of God who is drawing you and convicting you and showing you your need of Christ. And the goodness of God draws to repentance. But it's not just the things that have happened in the past. Paul will also use prophecy and the promises of God to prove that God is at work. Three verses in verses 33 to 35, he quotes three times from the Old Testament. And he says, this was speaking about Christ. It was fulfilled in Christ. I'm so glad for the promises of God that tell me that God is at work in my life. If you need to be reminded that God is in control, if you need to be reminded that God is at work, then go to the promises of God. Go to the promise of God that says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. There are times when people will say, I just feel like God's not with me anymore. I promise you, He is a God who keeps His promise. He is a God of His word. And He has given the promise that He will never leave you nor forsake you. My God shall supply all your need according to His riches and glory. The promises of God are fulfilled and they are what reminds us that God is at work but not only history and prophecy but there's also testimony notice what Paul says in verse 31 he speaks about the resurrection he draws them to Christ all of this is pointing to Christ all of this is pointing to Jesus 
Even the, the history points to Jesus because he says in verse 23, of David's seed, of David's descendants, has God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. The history, all of it was pointing, the work that God had done was pointing to Jesus. The prophecies in verse 33 and 35 are all pointing to Jesus. And the testimony, verse 31, he was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people, and we declare unto you the glad things, how the promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled the same unto us, their children, and that he has raised up Jesus again. I know that God has been at work in history. I know that God has been at work in the past. The Bible tells me that. I see that. There are promises that tell me that. But the greatest experience that I have and the greatest experiential knowledge that I have that God is at work is that I have personally experienced it in my life and I am an eyewitness. I am a testimony to that work that he has done. And so are you if you know Christ as your Savior. We could stand here this morning. We all know the times where God has been at work in our life. The times when he, well, the time when he saved us, but the times when he's carried us through the hard times, when he's carried us through the trials, when we felt like everyone was against us and he was the friend that stuck closer than a brother. He's the one that meets our needs. He's the one that has walked with you through some of the valleys that you've been through. He's walked with you through cancer. He's walked with you through sickness. He's carried you through family trials. He's been with you through that time. And you can stand and say, I know that God is at work. I know that God has been good. Why? Because we've seen He said, we know that Christ is risen because we have seen him with our eyes. God's work is a reality. The evidence of it is clear. But notice what the essence of it is. What is God doing? What is the essence of his work? It's one thing to say he's active, but what is he doing? It is centered in the work of redemption. And it is through that redemption that his power is seen and that God gets the glory. Whatever God is doing, whatever he is at work doing, it is to bring glory to himself. Why? Because he is worthy of of that glory. We could go through these verses, and I would encourage you to come back and reread this sermon later, but I want you to notice the times as you do the emphasis on the resurrection. Verse 30, God raised him, raised Jesus from the dead. Verse 33, or verse 34, he said, as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, no more to return to corruption. Verse 35, thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. He raised him from the dead. Verse 37, but he whom God raised again saw no corruption. What is the ultimate demonstration of God's power? What is the ultimate demonstration of God's work in this world and the completion of redemption and the power that works in us, not just to raise us from the dead in salvation, but to raise us daily to conquer sin, to be victorious over sin, and that will one day raise us from the dead when he takes us to heaven to be with him. And that is the power of the resurrection. That's the power that Paul was exalting here, is that God is at work, and God is always at work in a way that is demonstrating his power so that he gets the glory. And he says, we've seen him. Paul himself, as one, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, born out of due time. 
All the eyewitnesses, they saw Christ. They saw him raised from the dead. They saw the power of the resurrection that confirmed and affirmed that he was the Christ. He was the Messiah. He was the Savior. And he says, we are proclaiming him to you. This is the essence of what God is doing. And let me tell you that I may not know what God is doing in your life. I've had people ask me recently, I wonder, what, preacher, what do you think God's doing? And I have to say three of my favorite words. I don't know. Those are some of the most liberating words, by the way, you'll ever learn to say. For some reason, we always think we have to have an answer. I don't always know what God's doing in my own life, much less yours. You remember when Paul prayed and he said, God, please take this thorn away from me? Three times fervently he said I besought the Lord and God said I'm not going to take the thorn away my grace is sufficient for you Paul was given to understand that that thorn was there lest he should be exalted above measure Paul got to understand why God didn't answer his prayer Paul got to understand why things didn't go the way he thought they ought to go it was so he wouldn't get too big for his britches, is what, really what that phrase means. Lest I should be exalted above measure. But let me just say to you that there are times in our lives when God doesn't answer prayer the way we think he ought to. When God doesn't answer in the time that we want him to. And we don't understand. And we may not know the why till we get to heaven. But the true test of my faith is not if I believe God is able. Some people say faith is believing God is able. Well, that's a part of it. But the great test of my faith is not, is God able? Can God? We would say God can. The true test of my faith is, well, I still trust him when he doesn't. I won't ask you to raise your hands this morning, but how many of us can say we've had times in our life when we prayed for something to happen and we trusted and believed God, and God didn't do it. We've been through that. We've experienced that. There are some of you that have gone past Paul beseeching three times, and you've been praying and praying and praying, and we say, God, why? Why aren't you, why aren't you answering? I understand God answers no, and no is an answer, but I'm, I'm talking about God answering, giving us what we're asking for. Sometimes it may seem like a good thing, Paul might say, God, if you could take this thorn out of my flesh, I'd be able to minister so much more effectively. Imagine having whatever that thorn was. Paul has to travel in a time when it's, it's physically taxing to travel to minister. Think about how much more effective I could be for the gospel, God, if you took this out of my life. And God says, no, I'm not going to do it. I'll give you the grace that you'll need. Do I trust God to believe that he is good? even when, and that he is at work, even when I don't understand what he's doing. That's the test of our faith, and that's what Paul is calling these listeners to. Now, Paul is doing this in the context of salvation. And let me say to you this morning that if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, that this message is the same message we preach, that God's work in this world is that we are sinners, but he loved us. 
And he sent his son, Jesus, to the cross, to die on the cross, so that we could be brought back into a relationship with him. Jesus died on the cross, but three days later, he rose from the dead. God raised him from the dead. If we acknowledge that we are sinners, and we believe that Jesus died for our sins, and we confess him as our Lord and Savior, then we experience the redemptive work of God. We are born again. We are brought into the family of God. We become children of God. And that's what Paul was preaching. But here's the results or the response to God's work. What is the decision that Paul draws his listeners to and the Scripture and the Holy Spirit draws us to this morning? Look in verse 38. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you, through Jesus is preached unto you two things, the forgiveness of sins, and by him all that believe are justified from all things. Paul says you believe in Jesus, and you can have forgiveness of sins, and you can have justification. You can be made right in the sight of God. Boy, aren't you glad that we, we have that this morning? That God has done that for us? That our sins are forgiven? Some of you here this morning may be carrying the guilt of your sin. I want you to know that God forgives sin. He sent Jesus to the cross so that those who believe in him will have forgiveness of sins and they will be justified. That's how I stand before God this morning. I stand before him right I was so wrong. I was an enemy of God, but now I've been made a friend of God. I've been brought into his family, and I'm justified. And Paul says, you can have this if you believe. Here's your choice. Believe and receive the forgiveness of sins. Believe and be justified before God. Or, verse 40, beware, therefore, lest that come upon you, which is spoken of in the prophets. And he quotes another Old Testament verse. Behold, ye despisers, and wonder, and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you shall in no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you. Paul says, I'm that man declaring this unto you, and you have an option. You have a choice. Believe and receive forgiveness of sins and justification, or don't believe and perish. You see where he's brought them? the first section of this sermon, he has told about how their nation time and time and time again rejected and disbelieved God and were brought to judgment. And in the next section, when he talks about Jesus, he says, your rulers in Jerusalem, they didn't understand the prophets and they fulfilled those very prophets they didn't understand and they crucified Jesus. God was at work, but they didn't believe, they didn't trust. Your nation was in unbelief. Your leaders are in unbelief. What will you be in? Will you be in unbelief or will you believe? This morning, that same choice is for every person that is without Christ. Not every person who's not a part of this church, not every person who's not a Baptist, every person who's apart from Christ is faced with that same decision. Will I continue in unbelief or will I trust Christ for my eternal salvation? In a moment, we'll have an invitation, and I want to invite you even now, when that time comes, to just step out from where you are and publicly profess your faith in Christ, acknowledging your sinful condition before God, 
willing to acknowledge there's nothing that I can do to save myself. But I believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead so that I could be saved. And I confess Him as my Lord and Savior. For those of us who have trusted Him, what does this mean for us? Do we believe? My prayer of these days is often that, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. It's one thing to say, I believe. It's another thing to believe when the rubber meets the road, when the trials come. But you know what we can do? We can do what we said in a song just a moment ago. We can lift our hands and praise. We can call out as the psalmist did in Psalm 3. We can call out to the one who is our rock. We can rest in him. We can have absolute assurance that God is at work and he knows what he is doing and he has a purpose in what he is doing and it will be for his glory and for our good. But the question, the decision, the response, will I believe or will I not? I'm glad this morning that the Christian life is not one where I'm not burdened. But when I am burdened, I can say God's at work. God is in control. And when I look around and see my brothers and sisters, as I have seen many of you this week, facing challenges and facing trials and heavy burden, and I don't know what God is doing, I do know this. I can say God is at work. And God is in control. And when I look at this world around me and I see the evil that seems to be triumphing and the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing and all the wickedness that is going on and I feel overwhelmed by it. I feel like, what's the point? Where are we headed? All these things are going wrong. I am reminded that the work of man, the evil of man can never thwart the purpose or the work of God. And I know that God is at work and God is in control. What on earth is God doing? He's working a work. Are we willing to trust him? Let's bow our heads for prayer this morning. This morning, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, maybe you've tried to live a good life, maybe you're a member of a church, Maybe you've been even baptized, but there's never been a moment of time when you repented of your sins and trusted Christ as your Savior. Maybe this is the morning that you need to just step out from where you are. You can come down here and tell one of our pastors that you want to publicly profess your faith in Christ. You want to trust Christ as your Savior. We're not going to embarrass you or put you on the spot. But we want to rejoice with you. I invite you to do that. Please don't walk out this door. Just step out from where you are when we have the invitation in a moment. And believe. Believe. Don't be in unbelief. God has been at work since before the foundation of the world. The Lamb was slain. Jesus was slain as our sacrifice. And this work of redemption and salvation has been 
prepared since before the beginning of the world and God has been at work ever since and God has been at work in your life to bring you to this place to hear the gospel and to have the opportunity to respond to it I invite you to do that this morning for those of you who have trusted Christ with your eternal soul already if we can trust him with our soul and trust him with our eternity can I trust him with what I'm going through right now can I trust him with when prayers are not answered? Can I trust Him when I'm hurting? Can I trust Him when I'm suffering? Can I trust Him when I'm frustrated? Maybe this morning you need to come and you just need to lift your hands in praise and say, God, I trust that you're at work and you are in control. Saying that, praying that is a, is a freeing thing to say, God, I trust you and I trust that you're good and I trust that you're God. Father, speak to our hearts this morning in this time of invitation. We pray a 